are fragile emotional ecosystems where small disturbances ripple outward to have an outsized impact. That's a quote from Mark Frankel, our guest today on The Curiosity Files, the podcast that builds the capacity to ask meaningful questions in service to children. Our conversations with big picture thinkers in the field of education and beyond strives to activate a transformative future for thinking and learning. I'm Shell, the assistant head at the Lovett School, and I'm joined by my head of school, Meredith Cole. We started this podcast when our faculty was separated because of the outbreak of coronavirus. The goal was to continue to feed an intellectually hungry faculty and to find unique ways to gather as a community around topics that supported our core values. This is file number two, and today we have Mark Frankel joining us partner and senior consultant at Triangle Associates, the group that helps its clients understand and respond to challenges they confront in a rapidly changing world. Both a psychologist and executive coach, Mark received his master's and his PhD at Emory, so he is no stranger to our Atlanta world. Early in his career, he was in healthcare administration and clinical practice, and later founded the School Leadership Institute for the National Association of Independent Schools. He's a board member at the Wildwood School in Los Angeles, and it is really an amazing place. I mention it just because it adds some texture to who Mark is. The Wildwood School cultivates reflective scholars, bold innovators, and compassionate leaders equipped with the skills, ethics, and inspiration to transform the world. They refer to their students as brave learners, thinkers, and doers. Mark writes about the fear connected to change and how we reconfigure our lives when we exist in the in-betweens. His most recent article, Caretaking the Trust Garden, speaks directly to the heart of the trusting relationships we have to build at schools. He notes that without trust, there can be no benefit of the doubt or presumption of benevolent intent when something goes wrong. Mark's work on the future of teaching and learning is truly insightful. I once heard him speak about the way we configure our thinking around schools, and he used the example of gallbladder surgery. In 1960, gallbladder surgery involved a four to six inch abdominal incision, separation of or cutting through a layer of muscle to access the gallbladder under the liver, and recovery time following the surgery took two to three months after a four-day hospitalization. Today, gallbladder surgery is commonly performed with minimally invasive surgery. This is either laparoscopic or robotic-assisted surgery via a single opening in the belly button, no incision scar, and the patient usually goes home that same day. Mark's metaphor is important when we start to think about schools. We don't want to continue to be that 1960s gallbladder surgery when we know there are other options. I have given Mark the superhero name, the third eye. In all of my work with him, I've seen that he is able to look into the future, wide-eyed, eager for what is over the horizon, and make sense of what is to come. I've so appreciated that about him and look forward to talking about that with all of you. Mark, take it away. Wow, uh, I'd like to hear that person. That really sounds great. That talk. <laughs> Now, now, now I got to do it. Well, thank you, Shell and Meredith, and all of you for being part of this. What I'm going to do today is reflect back to that title of what's on our minds. What, what are we at Triangle Associates, Judy Schechtman, Abby Alessio, and I 
thinking about in terms of the future? What are we hearing from schools? What's on our mind when we think about the moment of schools? We, we could have a probably more interesting conversation about progressive education or about that uh, the gallbladder surgery sort of analogy that, that Shell quoted. The, the moment right now is a unique one. And, and I think we, we need to stay with that because what's keeping us awake at night in our firm was captured beautifully in this title quote from a McKenzie article last week. The future is not what it used to be. And uh, we're going to come back to that at, at a couple of points because it really isn't what it used to be. Whatever we thought the future was going to be uh, when we broke for the holidays in mid-December last year, uh, we came back after the holidays to a world that was uh, being transformed before our eyes. And by the by March, it was totally different than anything anyone had, had seen before. As much as we might hope that uh, there'll be a, a magical day when this will be over, uh, we can go back to restaurants and sit together at baseball games, even though I am a devout St. Louis Cardinal fan because I, I live in St. Louis for the past 37 years. My very first baseball experiences were at, uh, at Atlanta, back in the days when, when the Braves were, I think, mathematically eliminated by June every year. So, uh, you, you know, by August, as a graduate student, I could buy a two-buck bleacher seat and then uh, sneak around and sit behind Ted Turner and watch the games. Those days are going to creep back at us. And thesis we have is that this moment is going to transform things in ways that we can't yet begin to appreciate, not just in terms of, of the economy, but in terms of school, community, how people relate to each other. And I want to talk about four things with you. I talk about where we are now. Uh, I want to talk about teaching and learning AC. AC is after COVID. My asterisk down at the bottom is really important. Uh, there is no AC until there is a safe, reliable vaccine that at least 70% of the community has taken. Until then, it's a global game of whack-a-mole to, to deal with outbreaks. The optimistic scenario of about another year's run on uh, getting a vaccine, uh, one hopes for that, but that would fly in the face of vaccine development in history. Uh, that usually takes even longer than that. So AC may be a while coming to us. Uh, I wanna talk about enrollment. AC, because that's a question on everybody's mind, is, is what's our school composition going to look like? And then I want to talk about school communities at the end and, and what the impact on community is, is as we exit. I'd leave you at the end with four things to think about and, and maybe discuss more. Before COVID, in January, I was speaking with boards about, about a trifecta of factors that schools around the country were grappling with. Atlanta, Charlotte, D.C., Dallas, Houston, LA historically, particularly West LA, San Francisco have been golden markets where you just can't lose being in the schools business. But before COVID, we were starting to see some change. Charlotte was slowing down, not going negative in demography like St. Louis is, but becoming much less robust in growth. West LA had turned, where I'm a trustee, had turned negative in growth. Dallas had slowed down in its pace of growth. Houston was still going gangbusters, and Atlanta was starting to slow a bit, but still robust. What we were talking about with boards before COVID was this trifecta of factors that 2008, which now seems like a lifetime ago, and, and the economic crisis then changed the psychology of how parents pick schools, and it hasn't changed back. That's when the dynamics of why we buy a school as a parent 
change and the transactional nature of that purchase became much more evident. That's when we started hearing parents in our focus groups say things like, I shop every year, I see what's on offer at every school in town, and I make a comparison. That hasn't changed. We're still hearing it, except what we hear now is we, and this is a true story, we hear parents developing algorithms to factor variables that they go out and collect data on among schools and then use the algorithm to pick which school is best for their kid. Uh, that's a true story uh, out of a school in Manhattan. The psychology changed. Public schools have largely stopped uh, getting worse for the most part, and some are actually getting better. And a new generation of parents have come along who never really knew the public school slide. For them, they've always been this way. So if the public school, particularly in the elementary years, seems acceptable, then that becomes competition for independent schools in most markets. So we, we, what we've lost, uh, except in a couple of places and not very many, is that what's the major propellant to private school enrollment in the country over the past 50 years, which has been a decaying public school system. The third factor was that the marketplace is crowded. There's just a lot of alternatives, micro schools, home schools, uh, home schools that are four or five families that go together and hire a teacher, a whole alphabet soup of pedagogies and, and styles of doing school. Now, this was what we were talking about in January. And then something happened. As of April 15th, 191 governments in the world, that's countries, have closed K-12 schools in response to the coronavirus. The U.S., not completely evenly across the country, but most places completely. That's, a, that's amazing. That's, imagine this. In, in the space of less than four months, a virus came out of China. Within four months, less than four months, within three and a half months, it had infected every country in the world. How does it do that? How does a virus get from Wuhan to a nursing home in Arkansas in two and a half months? But it did. And that change, nothing ever has rivaled it for the speed at which that change has moved around the world. 1.6 billion kids are affected by this, are doing remote learning, or are simply out of school, uh, depending on where, where they are in the world. So after COVID, we have a trifecta of factors plus one. And the new one is this one. The economy and most of life is in an induced coma. And everyone's wanting to know the answer of what will it be like when we wake it up. What we can tell you is that it's extremely unlikely to be a return to what was before. So of course, you've probably seen the words that are being used to describe it isn't even the new normal, it's now the next normal, because then it'll be whatever normal comes after that. Let's talk about the first thing, the landscape today, and it, it has to be this one, mass unemployment. As of the time I made this slide, we had uh, 26 million newly unemployed. I put the plus because it's been three days, two days since Monday, so you know, things change. Uh, 26 million plus new unemployed in the United States, which is already, depending on how you estimate it, three to five times worse than 2008. So whatever 2008 was, this is uh, orders of magnitude worse. It's gonna correlate just in the first half of this year to about a 25 to 30% reduction in gross domestic product, GDP. If it feels like the world has stopped, it has. And, and th these numbers reflect that. What will these look like? 
if the world doesn't resume something in the second half of the year, then the annualized numbers will even look worse. This factor is huge. And depending on where you are in the country, the numbers may actually be worse. In Los Angeles County, we're looking at about a 54% unemployment rate today. The numbers on average are bad, but in any specific location, they may really be dreadful. Places that were highly dependent upon travel and entertainment, like Vegas, the employment, unemployment rate there is pushing 80 and 85%. What's the effect of that going to be on schools? Well, obviously, how long it goes on is going to have a big effect. But this is the defining characteristic of our moment, even beyond uh, the, the um, socialized effects of this, of, of social distancing. It's that the world has stopped uh, economically and socially. So the question people want to know is what kind of recovery? And uh, we're really, we, we have no clue, but I want, to, I want to describe several scenarios for kind of recovery. And, and then you can be thinking about this in terms of how it's going to play out. The key factor driving recovery is epidemiology. And the kind of economic recovery we see will depend upon the kind of epidemiological recovery we see. So on the epidemiological front, one recovery path is that the incidence of disease goes down, that the summer, you know, the, the warm weather does its thing. By the way, not a whole lot of data to support that because uh, Singapore, uh, India, uh, Malaysia, where the weather's always warm, have not really seen much of a variation in, in the incidence of this. And in fact, Singapore is on an upspike again of cases right now. So we could see that. It could go down. Uh, it could go down for any kind of reasons. Viruses mutate. Uh, that could cause it to become much less contagious. But for whatever reason, uh, as we get toward fall, we could see a decrease in the incidence of, of cases, and uh, that, that would create a very different sort of recovery scenario. We, we may see a decrease followed by uh, an uptick. So it could be the, uh, the cycle of start school in September, close school in October for two weeks, reopen in November, close again in December scenario, which may not sound too awful, but it's, imagine how convulsive that's going to be in a school community. If you thought it was convulsive going to remote learning this year, imagine doing it four or five times in the course of a few months. So that loop uh, is, is probably better than the next recovery that I'm gonna show you, but uh, it is nowhere near as good as disease incidents going down. Last one, of course, is that we open up again uh, and uh, all hell breaks loose with, with the virus. Uh, the incidence rate goes through the ceiling and then we really have to ratchet things down. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's of course what no one wants to see happen, but right now, no one knows. And that's the bottom line. Um, and anyone that says they know how that epidemiological recovery is gonna go is blowing smoke because there, there really is a, a basic. You, you can look back and you can say, yeah, well, SARS went this way or the Spanish flu went that way, but this one is so, is so different. And, and it moves at such a fast pace that, that it's hard to imagine it, any of those others being analogs for it. If we think about the, the economic recovery, uh, you can find great articles on these, a V-shaped recovery, which is we tank and then we come back up. The W-shaped recovery is uh, where we go up and down and up and down based on when the, the, the disease reemerges. Re and then uh, California goes on lockdown for a while again, but then Georgia doesn't, but Georgia's turn comes two months later. That, that would be a W-shape, up and down, up and down. A U-shaped recovery is where we go down and stay there for a while. And we stay down through spring and then start emerging uh, when a, in spring or summer if a vaccine comes along. But there's a long bottom to the U. And that, that's the, uh, 
get the characteristics to the U shape. Uh, there's the Nike swoosh, the smart money uh, bets on this one. On the uh, investor side, I seem to be favoring the Nike swoosh approach. That's where we have a slow up ramp. Uh, we go down and then we go up, but slowly. The recovery is, is, uh, takes a long time. That's probably a fairly safe bet because uh, if, you, if you're thinking about how many of us are going to be willing to run out uh, the first day things open and buy airplane tickets, probably not that many. We're not going to know. We're going to want to see how this is going to work out before we go uh, start flying all over the world again. And in fact, e even now, it's probably unlikely that any of us will be able to fly all over the world, at least outside of the U.S., uh, for, for a good long time. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, the one that no one wants to see happen, but we have to put it up there, which is the l shape recovery. It just doesn't happen. We go down and stay down for a very long time. That would be most unfortunate, but probably the key driver to that would be that we simply don't find a cure or a vaccine uh, for five years, and this thing just stays out there with it. its most virulent form. So keeping an eye on these things and how this starts to develop over the summer will give you some glimmers maybe of what fall will look like. But again, as I would say, no one knows. Um, we've got great models, but the, the actual performance against those models will be yet to be determined. So the question for schools, though, will we fear this moment to change the educational paradigm? Will we finally stop doing school like it's 1960s gallbladder surgery? Will we find a different way? Will we be shaken out of our notion that, uh, as uh, John Gula, who heads the E. Ford Foundation, says there's a, there's a uh, the, the modern education quantum, which has been in existence now for about 2,000 years, which is that X number of students in Y number of classrooms plus Z number of teachers equals a school. Will we finally break that quantum and start thinking differently about how teaching and learning can occur that lets us work either more efficiently or in different ways than we are used to? working in classrooms, because we would maybe have lost something if we simply breathe a sigh of relief when we can stop remote learning and revert back to doing what we were doing before. Core question I want to throw out there with you and, and leave you with, if nothing else from this talk, is as this starts to abate whenever it does, and I'm not optimistic uh, about it abating in time for the start of the next school year in a, in a massive way, what do you want to carry with you of what you've learned in the meantime? Because I see schools doing some marvelous stuff, just absolutely incredible stuff uh, around remote learning. Uh, e even uh, project-based learning schools like the one grammar trustee that uh, I, I couldn't imagine how our program could convert to remote learning and it's doing so incredibly well. It would be a shame if we simply snapped back to business as usual when this is over. So that question of what do we carry with us is important. Or as Kurt Lewin, the social psychologist, used to talk about that we need an unfree, that economies, businesses, schools, companies have a frozen state. We tend to be pretty much how we are day after day. And unless we have an unfreezing event, that was his word, uh, then change is almost impossible. So can we make COVID-19, for all of its tragedy, an unfreezing event that allows us to move and then refreeze, because that's what happens. We unfreeze, we change, and then we refreeze. What are those changes that we can 
capitalize on uh, this, this moment to achieve. So before COVID in, in BC times, and that feels now almost as remote as BC and our old uh, calendar method would, what kept school people awake? Enrollment, that was what we heard about. Enrollment was on everyone's mind. The result was a school's marketplace that is simultaneously more varied and less differentiated than ever before. So we've got a lot of schools, but the differences between them seem to be minor variations. Now, the school people inside don't see it that way, by the way. But what do your customers say? And unless yours are really different than most others we focus group, they perceive it being minor gradations of difference. So the differentiation isn't there, even though people have many more options. And that pre-COVID state is going to carry over. And here's our problem. Schools usually define value in terms of what they do to students, where parents post-2008 define value in terms of the outcome schools achieved with their child. And how then putting that question, so that's another kind of core question, what outcomes, how can you marry that question to the topic of what changes do you want to carry with you into the future from, from what you're learning as a result of going through the, the COVID experience? Let's talk a bit about some of the other things we're seeing and what, what are we are learning uh, about. Uh, and, and here's one that you might want to ponder a bit. Uh, every, everybody in the world is being scored right now. That's meaning everybody's being scored all the time for credit, for academics, for job worthiness. The, the scoring rubric of life is one that we can't ignore. And what I'm seeing is different schools doing different things around assessment of students in the online space, in the remote learning space, that actually look really promising and look like it gets us out of some of our old notions about what constitutes assessment. And that's one, one shift I'm hoping comes of this, is that schools will begin not letting the world define for us what good assessment looks like, but begin defining what good assessment should be and using uh, that is a, in a context of remote learning or in project-based groups or however you're doing your pedagogy. So if, if you struggle with that one, I, I know many of you have done the Global Online Academy course, Shifting and Teaching Online. One of the things I like most uh, about GOA is the work they've done on assessment in remote learning since theirs was all remote. And I think Michael Nakbar, who runs Global Online Academy, has really pushed that ball down the field about thinking of assessment differently in, in the online milieu. So after COVID, here's gonna be the big theme. So the big theme is this one, agility is the new growth. It doesn't matter where the school gets bigger, it doesn't matter if the school, if, if you're growing as, as people, what's gonna matter is can you be agile enough? Agility is the key here for making that shift, the pivot from having kids in your classroom on Friday afternoon and saying goodbye to them, and saying hello to them on Monday morning in a virtual classroom or in a remote learning space. That's a big pivot. I, I feel too, we feel it in our company for the difference between getting on an airplane and flying to see a school and spending time in the school walking around and then meeting with a group of faculty and then doing it this way. It, it, the agility, being able to make that switch is absolutely critical. If you can't make the switch between modalities and forms, then schools 
that are made up of teachers and administrators that can't are gonna lag. That just, that's just all I can say. So one of the things we need to carry forward with us is how do we increase the level of agility in our organization? Our ability to pivot, not just to try new things, which would be nice to try them when we don't have to, but we're gonna have to, and we're gonna be forced to. We hopefully won't have another pandemic of this scale, but we'll have something. There will be something else coming down the road. And that will force us to be agile again. Students are usually better at agility than teachers. Uh, teachers often seem like, can I learn this new trick? Um, they're having to do it now. And that's something, if you're in an administrative position or uh, if, you, if you're working with a teacher group at the school of peers, that I'd, I'd leave with you is how can we increase agility in our group so that when we need to make pivots like this, we can do so quickly. And when we're not needing to, how can we make pivots that we might want to because it serves our students and their families better? Another thought, remote becomes the new normal. That's it. It's the, it's the, it's the world. So the, the Zoom picture, we're seeing this screen all the time. The, the, if remote is the normal mode, then video skills and the ability to function in video is a core competency. And I'm going to say it's a core competency for students to work in that space, and it really is a core competency for teachers. And I'm not just talking here about avoiding being Zoom bombed by your, you know, your kids coming into the background. I'm meaning the agile ability to pivot from in, instruction in the classroom to remote learning and to not just translate what you're doing in the classroom into a video analog, but rather to make it something much more around learning. Maybe the last key point I wanna hit on with you, there's a new transparency that this has brought. We've done some virtual focus grouping with, uh, with parents in schools and with teachers. And the really interesting thing that's occurred to this as a result of remote learning is that parents now have in uh, the highest level of visibility into what goes on in their kid's school life than they've ever had before. They're seeing their kid's classroom. They're watching it in real time, even if it's asynchronously on the screen. So they're looking at teachers and now forming not just an impression of teacher as filtered through their kid's eyes, but an impression of the teacher as they're seeing on screen. That's got to be terrifying for teachers. That, that, that would be terrifying for me if, you know, it would be the equivalent to me in my old life as a psychotherapist, if, you know, someone's family is out here watching me do therapy with them. That's a whole other level of, of, of anxiety. But now we have spectators watching, teaching, and learning. And that's, by the way, not going to go away because when those families do come back with their kids to bricks and mortar classrooms, they're going to want that kind of visibility into seeing what the classroom environment looks like, feels like, and how the teacher's approaching things. So we can decry this one if we wish, but I don't think it's gonna go away because we've been hearing about parents wanting visibility in the classrooms for a long time. But that goes back to video being the new normal. If video is, is normal now in the future, and I believe it will be, then transparency just goes with it. And if that's the case, how can we prepare ourselves and our colleagues to be able to teach in a fishbowl? Because it's gonna be a fishbowl like never before.
And I've already said that predicting the future of, of the COVID course and the recovery is incredibly fraught. I'm not even going to try other than to say that I am suspicious of optimistic forecasts because uh, I think there's a whole lot of sausage to be made here as this goes along. We, we just, it'll play out and we're, we're all gonna be watching it. But even still, in that enormous ambiguity and uncertainty, what now? First, digital agility is a critical competency for teachers from now on. That's not gonna change. That's gonna be with us for the duration. So whatever there is after digital, then maybe that will change. But right now, digital is it and gonna be for a long, long time. And the ability to pit back and forth between in-person, remote, and large groups, one-on-one, -on -one, the ability to work in that milieu and do good teaching and learning there is a critical competency for teachers. So I predict that teach schools will be hiring for that competency. That will be something we'll want to see evidence of in the teachers we hire in the future. And teachers that aren't quite there yet are going to need to get up to speed on that competency if they're going to be successful uh, in the classroom of the future. Enrollment melt is almost a certain, especially so if school can't open this fall. And enrollment melt is the um, polite term that goes with uh, saying people have signed their contracts, they paid their deposit, and they don't show up in September. That's going to be really important when, when, when people show up, what they'll actually, how many butts will be in seats compared to what we think. The, the, that's going to erode somewhat. Whether it erodes 2%, 5%, or 25%, I think depends on location and depends on the market standing of the school. People will say, we intend to come back. But in the back of their mind is this notion of, I got to see what next year looks like. And if they're not back to work, uh, and if they're in a particular line of work where they aren't easily able to work from home and get paid, the whole economics of this is going to be very different. So we're already hearing people uh, calling admissions offices and asking for uh, huge jumps in financial assistance, or uh, the word now flexible tuition. The, the translation is you can have as much enrollment as you're able to pay for here in terms of how much flexible tuition you give, but it's almost a certainty. And smart schools are getting ready for different scenarios around, uh, around enrollment now. Assessment approaches must adapt to a fluid on-site uh, remote environment and then move back and forth. How do we evaluate student learning? How do we credential a student? How do we say a student has graduated if say 50% of their high school experience happened remotely because it had to, because we weren't able to get on top of the pandemic in time and we had to periodically go back to remote learning and then come on in, back in the building for a while and then go back out on remote learning. So this assessment is gonna be really key here and all the things that go with it when we begin evaluating student work. Mark, wow, that was really enlightening. Thank you so much for laying out that landscape for us we are gonna dive into some questions. One of the things that I know about you is that you've been influenced by Rick Marr and some of his work that's connected to change, which I think is really interesting. You actually introduced him to me. He talks a lot about what sort of change formats look like and how leaders connect to change. And very often that the way leaders think about change is really different than the way people experience change and some of the human emotions that are connected to that. And very often 
He says, leaders often roll out major changes in ways that create inertia and ap apathy and opposition through, through no ill intent at all, but just that the way that gets experienced can be really different. And so as we're launching into a really interesting new landscape, I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about the fears that are, and the, the real human emotions that are connected to a lot of that really invaluable data that you just gave us. Absolutely. And, and I think this is a bit different in some ways, Shell, because usually what happens in a school is a head is hired, a new head is hired on a change agenda. Uh, we we want to do something. We want to build the buildings. We want to start a new program. We want to fix a problem. Uh, we we want to uh, or one head that was hired to save a uh, failing sports program, uh, but it's hired to to do something. And that change agenda requires bringing the community along. And so what ends up happening is uh, leaders come in. They have a, a mandate from the governance from boards to make change, but yet their community isn't quite there and and they end up with leaders who are then evaluated by their bosses on how effective they are at making the change happen in communities that are have a vested interest in not in not making the trip and that that sets up that sort of conflict uh, the the uniqueness this time is we're all thrown in this together suddenly no one got up one morning in, in January and said, gee, let's figure out how we can just turn everything upside down in the whole world as, as quickly as possible and make this happen. So let's, let's begin by naming that we're all in this together. And, and I think it helps somewhat if we can have, uh, first, if we all can have that appreciation for our shared humanity, that we're all trying to navigate the same thing uh, and the same difficulties, uh, and that uh, if we can all jointly let go and I'll, I'll use the term grieve the way things used to be and realize that that's unlikely to return even if a semblance of it does it's unlikely that everyone will return and, and that's even not because the getting the disease that's because of the economic impact or they begin rethinking their life and and deciding that living in new york city or la or atlanta isn't quite what they want to do maybe joplin missouri isn't so bad after all so i, I think there's going to be a whole lot of shift as a result of this and and it's critical that we talk about this stuff and that we get it out there and realize uh, that there's a shared humanity that we're all dealing with the same thing and that goes a long way toward helping people not feel less scared but feel like that they're understood and that leaders in organizations understand what people are going through. We're all gonna have the reactions we have to this, and we, but as leaders, we can't go on as if nothing happened. I recently reread an article that you wrote for Independent School Magazine, now several years ago, and it was entitled, Caution, Parents 2.0 Ahead. Hmm. And it was a really interesting article that helped us as educators start to understand the need state of parents, really hmm. referencing parents looking for curriculum that is safe and familiar. And you might imagine that as a school, we're getting a lot of very interesting feedback. Very oftentimes, it feels very schizophrenic. So I read two emails, one right after another, that are advocating for two radically different experiences. <laughs> but that safety and familiarity is gone. I mean, this is radically different than anything parents have experienced. What are some things that we as educators can do that's helpful. I would go with two things first. I think the, the 
some some communication around what you're hearing and the the different viewpoints you're hearing is is important. We we were doing an analysis of uh, parent satisfaction surveys for a school, and uh, one of the answers to a question about when you think about your kid's future, uh, what type of education will best serve their interests? And the answer to that question was a cutting edge 21st century, this was back about the time that was all the buzzword, a cutting edge 21st century pedagogy in the classroom of tomorrow. The answer to the question of why did you pick this school was because it looks like the little red schoolhouse in the country I wish I had attended as a kid. Now, the interesting thing is that comment came from the same parent. Mm -hmm. It was on the same line in the database. So parents are, they are of two minds about these things. That's just how, how people are. That's how we all are about things. So they do want that. And, and I think you can talk about how you're gonna use this moment to help make education more successful for their kid and safer for them when they do return and as it goes on. Because uh, that's gonna be a huge concern now for parents. It was high anxiety before in returning to school and when they do, it's gonna be high anxiety about is this safe? And is, uh, is, this, is it okay? Is the school taking unnecessary risks? So I think we're gonna to have to really double down on our communication, anticipating an ever more anxious clientele. So I would simply be talking about those things with people and naming them. Shall I, I just wanna cycle back to something. Your strong emotions, whenever you encounter strong emotions, especially if it seems out of proportion to whatever the issue at the moment is, then something's probably going on um, that's deeper and the strong emotion itself becomes a defense against that. Parents will reflect that on the school. Uh, there's a lot here they can't control. If I put myself back in that position, my son went through private independent schools in St. Louis all, all through his schooling years. There's so much about life that we can't control and we can't control almost anything about what's going on now. One thing we can control is where we send our kid to school. And if we make that choice, then we can try to shape that choice to be what we think it has to be. So just understanding that your, forgive me for using the word here, customer is at a, has always been anxious, has been getting increasingly anxious, and now is going to be somewhere in the stratospheric levels of anxiety now and when they come back. So when you're thinking about the end of the school year, parents need to know that their kid's okay, that their kid wasn't damaged by this experience that what happened in the remote learning environment has their kid well-prepared for what comes next, and not just cognitively well-prepared, but emotionally well-prepared. Because we know that the state of the typical student's mental health in the uh, run-up to, to COVID was fragile, and that was certainly something that we were seeing in, in lots of uh, uh, of books from Gene Twingies all the way forward into some of the later work on, on mental health and kids. Now the question's going to be about, are, are, are my, okay, so my kids are cognitively ready, but how's the mental health in this? Will you talk a little bit about the rhythm of COVID life and what that looks like? You, you've talked a little bit about 
the cycle of school felt predictable and safe to us. And we've really turned that on its head. So what are some good thinking frames for us as educators? Well, very few things uh, other than maybe agriculture uh, have a rhythm the way school does. And, and maybe it's no accident that the school year looks agrarian. It's very rhythmic. We have back to school. We have uh, marking periods. We have ends of semesters. We have exam dates. We have the we do guys and dolls in the as a musical theater every four or five years. Uh, there's a predictable rotation. You know, I, I, when I go back to a school and see the banner up with the play that's being on, I go, oh yeah, that that's that's this year. Okay, yeah, that, that's making its way back again. That rhythm is both appealing to people and uh, because it kind of looks like what we've known. But it's very comforting. It, it leads us to think, all right, it's kind of like the seasons. It's, you know, the days are getting longer now. We know they're going to get shorter. But I don't think people really like being in a place that would look the same every day. We like the rhythm of that. There's no rhythm now other than that we get up and we try to figure out what day it is. That each day is Groundhog Day stuff. So I, I think one thing schools can do is find ways to provide some rhythm to what you're doing online, even though it's remote. And use help encourage your students and their families to create rhythm at home. I, I think the hunkering down was, okay, maybe two weeks, maybe four weeks. Now we're probably gonna be a couple, three more months. If it's gonna be that long, how can we establish some rhythm in life that isn't the same as what we had before, but is it meets that basic, uh, I think, subcortical human need for uh, some level of predictability. We have a few questions. One Please. is about feedback and input. So we have, we've elicited a lot. In terms of how we are making meaning from feedback and input, balancing teacher needs, parent needs, and student needs, do you have any advice for us as we attempt to filter through that in, in terms of looking at teachers' well-being, knowing that Lots of families would like teachers to be online for about eight hours a day with their child doing this. And our sense of, wow, that's really not good for kids. And we also have families yep. who are feeling pretty desperate. So any advice for you have for us as we look at that feedback? Oh, yeah, two directions on that one. The, the first is, is I think you're going to get more feedback than you're going to have the bandwidth to handle in, in real time now someone should be doing triage on the feedback and sorting it into two buckets. One bucket is what do we really need to be paying attention to now? What's real time stuff that has to do with something that needs a response immediately uh, that, that we need to address in the classroom or with a family or, or something. I think that's gonna be relatively small. Excuse me, it's not going to be zero. So that, that bucket needs to be switched. The other stuff is the stuff that we really are going to need to think about and maybe factor into our planning for the future and may help with that question of what do we want to carry with us. But it's not something that requires responding to today. And we'll get to that in the summer. And I'm not doing this just to kick the can down the road. I think it's worth saying to your community, you know, right now, it, we're all running flat out just getting the school year to the finish line. And we're here working every day committed to having kids have the best experience. So we're gonna look at all your feedback and we're gonna to respond to the stuff that, that really needs to be taken care of now. We're gonna to commit to you that in the summer, 
we're going to come back to all that other feedback and we're going to process it because we think there's lessons to be learned here for us tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So that, that's something. Now, to your more individual thing with, with, with teachers, doing webcasts on what great teaching and learning looks like in the remote environment, what, uh, what makes sense and what the data show makes sense in terms of teachers. Uh, it was a shocking idea to a group of parents uh, when one of my colleagues in the firm said last week, the digital world should not be merely an analog device for the old physical world. And, and the analogy she used was, remember when the PC first came out, uh, they were just essentially typewriters for us. We, we were, even though they had enormous potential, we were still using them as uh, analogs of the old Smith Corona and IBM typewriters. We really didn't get to their potential as a communication. And we could argue we still haven't gotten to their communication as a, as a communication device and, and a uh, data handling device uh, until much later. And that right, right now, I think helping parents see what good looks like, because they don't know what good looks like. Assuming that we would have a return in the fall at, at mm-hmm. some point, what are two or three things that you can think of that students will need most? I think they're going to need uh, validation for having gone on the journey to remote learning with you and having been part of making it successful. So uh, what the first day of, whenever that happens, when, what the first day of school should not be, whether it's uh, August 27th or October 14th, it shouldn't just be business as usual. There needs to be an acknowledgement of what we've been through, uh, what's happened, and how uh, transformed our worlds. I think if the school opens uh, appreciably smaller than it is, even by a few kids, it's it's worth noting that there's a loss here and naming that because uh, it, it feels less human not to. You just can't go back and say it's business as usual. And I think some time spent with students reflecting with them on that question of what they want to carry forward with them and, and what would have been the losses, but what, what are the gains? What are the things that they want to carry forward from this experience is, is really important because in their life, they're very likely to, to be back to something like this somewhere down the road. There, there are, depending on which study you read, over a thousand viruses identified and unidentified that may, any one of them can make a leap at some time. So in their lifetime, they're likely to be back here. And if it's not a virus, it could be something else. So what do they want to carry forward with it? That's, that's psychologically important to help them make that transition back into school. I'm wondering, what, what would be your wish for us as we are walking through this really uncharted territory? You mean other than that we all survive? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's an importance here that I, I don't think can be understated. You know, I, I think about Katrina and New Orleans and the role, and, and that, that was time bound in, in a whole way that this is not, but that utterly transformed New Orleans in, in better and worse ways. But one of the important things was that school be community for kids and families during and after uh, the, the, the hurricane. That's why it was so important to get to get Isidore Newman and uh, the other schools up and running very quickly afterward, even if only a handful of families were there, because it was that center of community. And I think regardless of how long this takes to play out, 
my hope for every school is that it be that center of community in some way. Mm -hmm. So maybe the last question to leave you thinking about as you go away is how can we, how, for however long this plays out in whatever form, be the center of community for our teachers, our kids, and our parents uh, that gives them that, uh, that anchor in a world that may not have the same kinds of anchors for them that might have existed a generation or two ago. Thank you, thank you so much for taking time out to do this with us today. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm so thrilled. Thank you for, for inviting me to do this. Thank you, Mark, you be well.